Well, over the past couple of years, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, we've been taking note of important themes that are woven throughout the book. And one of those themes is this series of I am statements, I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. Statements where he identifies himself as the fulfillment of a whole number of Old Testament shadows, right? as Israel's Messiah, as the very Son of God. And this morning, we are coming to the seventh and final of those great I Am statements. And this one this morning is, I am the true vine. And we'll get to the meaning of that in just a moment. But first, let's, let's just go back and review where we've been so far in, in John's gospel in terms of these I Am statements. There it is. Good. Number one was, I am the bread of life from chapter six. Everybody remember? The one who provides true bread from heaven. Number two, I am the light of the world from chapter eight, the one who gives sight to the blind. Number three, I am the door from chapter 10, the one through whom God's true flock enters, right, into the sheepfold. Number four, just four verses later in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, the one whose voice the sheep recognize and follow and the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life from chapter 11, the one who has power over death itself. Number six, I am the way and the truth and the life from chapter 14, the one and only way to the Father, the word of truth and the giver of eternal life. And by the way, on top of those six I am statements so far, we've seen a couple of really uh, interesting, powerful uh, moments where Jesus fulfills certain Old Testament shadows, like becoming the replacement for the Jerusalem temple. We heard about how Jesus provides this type of living water that Jacob's well could not deliver. So all these Old Testament fulfillments. And now today, number seven, today we get to hear him say this, I am the true vine. Now, where does that imagery, imagery come from? The vine. There's a number of places in the Old Testament where we see Israel portrayed as God's vine. God's precious vine, in fact, that he himself planted in the promised land. And over time, because of what we see in the Old Testament about this vine imagery, historically speaking, the vine became a well-known symbol for the nation of Israel itself. In fact, you will see the vine oftentimes in, in ancient coins that they dig up in Israel, particularly during the Maccabean period. Historians of that time tell us that Herod the Great loved this imagery so much that as he built as he built the, the Herod's temple, he built a giant golden vine into the massive doorway into the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem, a site that was apparently so remarkable that the Jewish-hating Roman historian Tacitus actually talks about it in his writings because it was so spectacular. So the vine imagery has a, has a long history with the Jewish people and with the land of Israel. So let me just share a couple of Old Testament passages where this comes out. And this will give us some context for why Jesus suddenly talks about this vine. In Isaiah chapter five, God literally sings a love song over his people Israel. And he talks about granting them this abundant land where they can plant and they can reap a great harvest. And here's what he said, here's what Isaiah says about God's faithfulness in the land. He says, he, God, broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yield, yielded worthless grapes. And so the Lord asked, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? So 
Because it failed to produce the expected fruit, that is Israel, the Lord now will take drastic action. And this is what Isaiah 5 continues to say. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. Now, obviously God is speaking of more than just a physical vineyard here, right? There's a, this is a spiritual metaphor. Vine, grapes, these are spiritual metaphors. And spiritually speaking, his people, Israel, had not produced the fruit that God expected. They were a fruitless nation. So Isaiah 5, what starts out as a love song, now takes a sharp turn towards judgment. Because of their sin and rebellion, Yahweh promises that he is going to pass judgment upon them and send the surrounding nations to punish them, to consume them, to trample them. And so between the time of Isaiah and the time of the coming of Christ, we see all these surrounding nations that share in this punishment of Israel. We see the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and finally the Romans. And by the time the Romans come in, the vineyard has become a wasteland. It is overgrown, spiritually speaking, with thistles and thorns. Here's a second example from the 80th Psalm, a psalm of a man named Asaph. It begins with a reference to the Exodus, God bringing his people out of Egypt and graciously bringing them into this promised land, this beautiful promised land filled with milk and honey. And here's what the psalmist says about the vine of Israel. He says, you cleared a place for it. Speaking of God, it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with, it, with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea, that's the Mediterranean, and shoots toward the river, that's the River Jordan. And so for a while, the land prospered. But then we hear the same story. Boars from the forest tear at it, and creatures of the field feed on it. So as these wild animals ravage the vineyard, the psalmist cries out to the Lord to turn back and restore uh, the, the vine that he had once established. And this is what he goes on to say. Return, God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine. The root your right hand planted. The sun that you made strong for yourself. Restore us, Lord, God of hosts. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. So all this amazing vine imagery in the Old Testament, and whether it's the Psalms or Isaiah, and by the way, they're not alone. Jeremiah uses this, this same metaphor, and Ezekiel and Hosea, they all use it. You see that God planted this precious vine for one purpose. He had one goal in mind, and that was that they would bear fruit for his glory. But over and over again, Israel failed. In every single mention of the vine in the Old Testament, every single mention, it's a story of failure, a failure to produce fruit. And that's exactly what now sets the stage for the coming of, of, of Christ. Hundreds of years later, Jesus walks on this parched land, right? This wasteland, this, this land filled with thorns and briars, spiritually speaking, and he comes as Israel's rightful Messiah and King. And he is going to prove to be the fulfillment of all that God originally intended for his people Israel. He becomes that true vine that God expected, the true vine that will bring forth the fruit that Israel failed to produce. So that's the connection with what our passage today. So grab your Bibles and let's look at it now. It's a very well-known passage, John 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Sometimes we, we read these, uh, these uh, metaphors in the New Testament and we're like, where did that come from? 
So it's good to be able to go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, okay, now we see, and we can understand how, as Jesus is talking to this completely Jewish audience, that they're going to understand that even when we don't necessarily get it the first time out. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, we wrapped up chapter 14. We looked at the very last phrase in that final verse, right? Chapter 14, verse 31, the last phrase says, Jesus says to the disciples, let us get up and go from here. Remember, they were in the upper room on that Passover night, right? They're in the upper room, and Jesus says, after, a whole, after washing the disciples' feet and, and teaching and the institution of communion, all these things, he says, let us get up and go from here. And I shared with you last week that in my opinion, that's exactly what happened next. Jesus and the 11 disciples did indeed get up in that moment, and they left the upper room. What that means is the teaching that we see in chapters 15 and 16 and the prayer, the great prayer in chapter 17, those things take place as these 11 men are now walking from the upper city of Jerusalem, out the city walls, up the Kidron Valley, and towards the Mount of Olives. Ultimately, they're going to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is sort of a walking teaching moment for Jesus here. So the idea of Jesus and his guys moving through the streets of Jerusalem has caused scholars to do all kinds of interesting speculations about this, uh, this passage because scholars look at this and go, where did this vine thing suddenly pop up? The, the transition from chapters 14 and 15 have puzzled them. Now, we know that it was Passover season and historians can actually go back and trace lunar movements. And, and we know that on this night, the moon would have been absolutely full. So it would have been very much a moonlit city in Jerusalem that night. And so the speculation goes like this, that under that bright moon, Jesus is leading his guys you know, out of the city into the Kidron Valley, but they're able to see things around them and they walk by a literal vineyard. And Jesus, as he's prone to do, points to the disciples and says, look over here, look at this vineyard, I have something to share with you. Now, we don't know if that actually happened, but it makes sense if, that's, if it was moonlit like that. If they were walking through the Kidron Valley, it's very likely that on the slopes there, they could have walked by a, a literal vineyard. And we know that Jesus does this a lot, right? He uses local imagery, things that people understand, to make his point. So it is possible, but we can't know for sure. Nevertheless, let's look at this amazing text. And as we do, I want you to picture these guys, these 11 guys walking in this moonlit night through the Kidron Valley. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the Georgos in Greek. It's, it's translated vine dresser, or if you just want a simple word that we understand in English, the gardener, okay? Uh, my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the gardener, takes away. Now, that language there is important. He takes away. I want you to think of what does a faithful gardener do? If you own a home and you have a gardener, you know that the expectation is, is that he is going to go into your shrubs and cut away unfruitful branches, dead branches, things that are not going to benefit that shrub or that tree. So every fruitless branch he must remove. Continuing in verse 2. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, you, disciples, are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, 
and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, I realize a lot of you here today have probably heard sermons on this passage. I'm, I'm pretty sure that many of you, because uh, we all love to read through John in our personal study time, have read through this passage. But still, most of us here this morning are city dwellers. We are not farmers. We don't have expansive pieces of land. I, unless somebody in, in our church has a secret vineyard I don't know about, um, this type of language can be a little bit unfamiliar to us, right? But it wasn't for these disciples. This is common everyday language for them. They live in a world that is surrounded by agriculture. In fact, life depends on crops. It depends on having a good harvest you know, each and every season, every year. So what Jesus says here, it takes us a little time to try to figure out what's going on, but the disciples get it. This is their everyday language. Now, the allegory itself isn't that hard to interpret. The characters are pretty obvious, right? God the Father is the vine dresser or the gardener. He owns the vineyard. He tends to the vineyard. And yes, he expects a harvest to come from it, as any farmer in that time did. You plant, right? You plant seeds, you expect a harvest. And that's the vine dresser. God the Son is the vine. And of course, the branches are disciples, some of which bear fruit and others which don't. And that's obviously key here. Now, it's important for us to know the difference between planting say, a flower garden and planting a vineyard, okay? A lot of us, again, if you're a homeowner, you've probably planted flowers. I know I, you guys know I love to, I love to garden and just get my hands in the soil. And, and so why do you plant a flower garden? So that you can see that plant grow and the beautiful flowers come out. That's the only reason to do it, right? So you go out every day and you're like, oh, it's starting to bud and you're starting to see the flowers. It's all about aesthetics, right? That is not what a vineyard's about, a vineyard has nothing to do with aesthetics. The entire purpose of a vineyard is to harvest a healthy crop of grapes. It doesn't matter how it looks. It's about the fruit. The goal of any vineyard is to bear lots and lots of fruit. In fact, let me give you a picture. That's what a healthy vine looks like. And you see a combination there of leaves and grapes, right? But that's what a healthy vine ought to look like. The goal is to bear the fruit. Now, if your vineyard looks nice from afar because it's full of beautiful leaves, big, beautiful leaves, that's useless. It might look really pretty, but without fruit, it has no purpose. If there's not grapes underneath those leaves, then that vineyard is a failure. You have to know that. Now, to help in the production of the grapes, a gardener doesn't just sit back and act passively when you tend a vineyard. It takes constant work. You don't just plant the seed and and just walk away and expect things to happen. It takes a whole bunch of work. You've got to tend to those vines. And one of the keys to tending to those vines is knowing how to prune properly. This is one of the first things I learned as a homeowner. I started planting things all over the place, and I never pruned, and nobody ever told me otherwise, and my, gar my garden started looking terrible, and then I got onto YouTube, right, and figured out how to prune things correct. YouTube, it, basically every answer in the world, right? Uh, and you learn how to prune things properly. The gardener has to cut away any branch that isn't showing signs of life, isn't showing signs of fruitfulness. It might be a dead branch. It might be a diseased branch. And also, the gardener has to watch out for what, what we call sucker shoots, which I know is a funny name. But these are shoots that come out of the vine, and a lot of times they have great leaves, beautiful leaves. And again, they look pretty, but they're sucker shoots. They will never mature and actually bear fruit. And even worse... If they're not cut away, if they're allowed to remain, those shoots will actually sap the life of the vine. It'll sap the life and greatly reduce the quantity of fruit 
that that vine will produce. So as good as they look on the outside, sucker shoots are not only useless, they are harmful to the plant. And so a good gardener has got to remove them. Then there are the branches that are producing fruit. And this is the joy of the gardener, right? All the vines that you're starting to see those grapes come out. Uh, even those have to be tended to. It's, again, it's not enough to just let them, let them grow. In seasons, they've got to be pruned. They've got to be cut back, right? So when that season of bloom arrives, they'll grow even stronger. That's the whole point. You cut them back so when the season comes around again, they grow bigger, stronger, and bear more fruit. And it's actually very counterintuitive. Uh, I know that my wife, every, every winter gets concerned because I have some, some pretty large plants. Some of them are potted. Some are in, in the ground in our backyard. And come January, man, I cut them to the nubs. And every year we look at them and go, that looks dead. Because you cut them to nothing, right? But by spring, they're giant. They just, they grow again and they got beautiful flowers. And you're like, it's, it's really a miracle of God. But it's sort of counter, counterintuitive that you would take a plant and cut it back to that extent. An unpruned grapevine will grow very large. And you might be tempted to say, don't cut it. Just let it keep growing, right? Let it get bigger. But the larger unpruned vine will actually produce less fruit than a vine that you cut back regularly. Even though it's smaller, it will produce more fruit. So it's sort of counterintuitive. So I hopefully, hopefully that helps you a little bit. If you guys are, maybe you guys are students, you're like, I've never been in my parents' yard ever. <laughs> I've never worked a yard at all. Uh, but these things matter when someday you, you uh, own a house and, and maybe you'll own a vineyard, who knows? But if you ever end up planting and pruning, you've got to know these things. All right, hopefully as we talk about those things, you already see the parallel, spiritual parallels, right? Between the gardener spiritually and the gardener physically and the vine spiritually and the vine physically, hopefully you already sort of can make that connection. But let me try to flesh it out some more. Before we get to the picture of the fruitful disciple, which I hope is every single person, in this room this morning, let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Go back to verse two. Let's look at the branches that don't produce fruit. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the gardener, takes away. So why doesn't the branch bear fruit? Because that's not connected to the true vine. Very simple, right? In the metaphor, Jesus, the vine, is life-giving and fruit-generating. So any branch that isn't connected to the vine is not gonna bear fruit. And every branch that is connected will bear fruit. This is just the, the basics of the metaphor, the allegory, right? It's got to be connected to the life-giving vine and the fruit-generating uh, uh, vine, right? So in verse 2, you've got a branch that's not showing any signs of fruit. Therefore, it's not connected to Jesus. Now drop down to verse 6. Jesus expands on it in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, that is, he or she is not connected to the vine and therefore does not have life, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now that language, again, is strikingly similar to some of the language we find in the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Ezekiel. In the days of Judah's downfall and exile in Ezekiel 15, Yahweh declares that if Judah, the vine, fails to produce fruit, it is only good for one thing and that is burning in the fire. Now, that's a hard thing for us to process, right? God says of his own people, if you will not produce fruit, you are good for one thing, and that is kindling of a fire. Let me give you this passage from Ezekiel 15. Oh, wait, sorry. Oh, there's pruning. As if you needed to know what that is, right? Those are called pruning shears, people. <laughs> okay, is that Ezekiel 15? Boom, it is. Good. Thus says the Lord God, 
as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. So the prince, whether we're talking 600 BC or we're talking 33 AD, the principle is the same. Unfaithfulness or a lack of spiritual fruit brings judgment from God. I have to know that. Unfaithfulness or lack of spiritual fruit brings forth judgment. And as harsh as it may seem, the burning fire in both Ezekiel and in John's gospel testifies to the uselessness of what's being burned up. Uselessness. Again, these are, th- this language is pretty harsh, isn't it? Useless in God's sight, only worthy of being kindled as a fire. With any crop, the fruitless branches are removed by the gardener. And they're removed so that the, the fruitful branches have more room to grow, so that they can expand, get rid of the dead wood, so that the live wood can continue to grow and to thrive. And because the fruitless branches have not fulfilled their design, they've not fulfilled their purpose, once they've been cut out and removed, they're only good for one thing, God says. And that's the fire. Now, let me address a common error that often comes out of this passage. You see there in verse two, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That phrase in me can be very, very confusing. The objection is raised, well, if someone is in Jesus, how can they be removed? Does this passage teach that you can be in Jesus, saved, redeemed, and fall away, be lost, lose your salvation? Now, if you've been a part of Oak Hill for any period of time, I don't think I have to waste a lot of time refuting that teaching. It's like the difficult passage we looked at last Sunday where Jesus talks about his father and says he's greater than I. When we bump into statements like that and like this one, what do we do? We stop and we interpret that single phrase in light of the entire New Testament canon, right? And we let scripture interpret scripture. We let clear theological statements guide us as we try to explain that difficult statement in that one particular verse. And as you know, I could probably go off for 30 minutes right now and we could look at verse after verse, passage after passage that teach very clearly that salvation cannot be lost. I'm not going to do that this morning. We don't have time. But we could do that, right? And the root of that truth, the idea that we are, once we're saved by God, that we're held firmly in his hand, the root of that is God himself, his sovereign hand, because he holds us by his power and by his will. And what God purposes to do, he does. That's the very definition of sovereignty, right? Whatever God purposes to do, he does. If he's purposed to save you, he will save you, period. You are not going to slip out of his hand. So nothing can steal that away from you. Nothing can overturn the will of the Almighty. So set that aside. But then we need to answer the question, so what is Jesus talking about here when he says, in me? Well, let's look at that. As you know, because multiple times in this series in John, we've looked at passages like this, there is a consistent strand of New Testament verses that describe men and women who for a time, for a time, appear to have a connection to Jesus and a connection to the local church, but then fall away. And again, we could go through all those passages. We could look at Hebrews 6. We could talk about the, you know, the Lord, Lord uh, passage in Matthew. We could look at all those. We don't have time, but they're there. We could look at the parable of the soils, right? There's all these passages that speak of this thing. Folks that give outward signs that they are connected to the vine. Outward signs that spiritual life is present. 
but they are in Christ only in the sense they are, that they are in the general vicinity of a church family. That's it. They're not really in Christ. They're in the vicinity of a church body. And oftentimes they fool church members, right? It's happened here at Oak Hill. They, we, we look at them and we believe that, that their profession of faith is true, but eventually time tells you that that's not true. Over time, they fall away. And using the vineyard metaphor, they have leaves, right? We see leaves in their life and we're like, yeah, that looks authentic. That looks genuine. But if we lift up the leaves, there's no fruit. There's no grapes there. And it's tough for us to discern that sometimes, right? But time, time reveals it. They're sucker shoots. They look good, but they were sapping the body because they weren't true believers. There is no fruit in their lives. So ultimately, and sadly, and we, you know, this breaks our heart, right? They will drift away. In time, they will drift away. Why? Because they don't have the vital connection to the vine. There's no life in them. So they can put up that image for a while. They can try to live out that lie. But eventually, Jesus says here, they will dry up. Right? He says that in verse 2. They will dry up, they will wither, and they will drift away. And it's heartbreaking, right? But the Bible confirms for us that their removal from the body is ultimately the work of a sovereign God, a faithful gardener who cuts away the dead wood so that the true fruit-bearing branches can thrive and can grow. So it is hard. It's, it's, it's difficult to see people that we have a relationship with fall away. Can we trust a sovereign God with that? Yeah, because he's a good gardener. And he knows what's best for us. But it is the logical consequence of falsehood and unbelief. These folks are gathered up and cast into the fire. And if you're you're like, well, I don't know if I I like this. I don't know if that's true. Do do people really get that close to, to Jesus and then fall away? Do you remember we just covered Judas Iscariot? So we have exhibit A, don't we? Just back in chapter 13 of that exact thing. And Judas was able to be a sucker shoot with the leaves and no fruit right under the noses of men like Peter and James and John and the rest and fool them all. So we know it can happen, right? Judas professed a belief. He was with Jesus for three years doing ministry in his name. Imagine that. You and I would have looked at it and said, Judas is in the fold just as the other guys did. But he couldn't sustain that lie forever. And eventually the idols of his heart came to the surface and overwhelmed him. Those idols became more important than continuing to prop up this lie. And they, and they overtook him. And what, we know what happens to Judas, right? He betrays the master. He becomes a traitor to the cause of the gospel. And he is gathered up and he is thrown into the fire. We see that in scripture. So, that is, that is the hard truth of the branches that don't bear fruit. And again, you know, this is part of why we need to be fruit inspectors in a local body. We need to, to have that careful watchfulness over one another, to ask hard questions, to, to test people to say, you know, are you really a believer? Not out of this, this sense of, well, I need to go around trying to, you know, be the... the uh, the person that gets in everybody's business to be a busybody, but because we love, because we care. And so we want to have those conversations. So with all that in mind, let's turn our attention now to the fruitful branches, the fruitful ones. What does it mean to bear fruit? What does it mean to bear fruit? 
We can answer that question by going back to the context of the upper room discourse. Remember, Jesus wanted his friends to know that night in that room that he was not going to just desert them, that he was not going to make them spiritual orphans, even though he was going away. Even though they would no longer enjoy his physical presence, he said, I will not leave you as spiritual orphans. And the, promises, the promise that he gave the disciples that he would send another helper, right, the Holy Spirit, who would not only be with them, but in them, which was a great revelation, right? And he said, the Spirit's going to continue my teaching ministry among you. And the Spirit will come and he will remind you of all the things that I said while I was on the earth. And so this is how Jesus functions as the vine. You need to see this. This is how Jesus, who is right now at the right hand of the Father in power, right? This is how he nourishes and sustains you and I, his true followers. How he produces fruit in our lives. He does that by way of the Spirit. Jesus does that by the way of the Spirit, who indwells the believer and acts directly upon our hearts. So listen, God's purpose in saving you and saving me was that we might bear fruit. Did you know that? I mean, eternal life is pretty cool, right? It's a pretty good gift, but God's purpose in saving you and saving me is that we would bear fruit for the kingdom, that we would bear fruit for his glory, and then we go on to progressively bear even more fruit as he worked in us, that there's this cycle of, of more and more fruit being produced as we mature in the faith. That's, that's God's will for your life, that you continue to bear more and more fruit as we depend upon him. Now, what is that fruit? What is the fruit that God wants to produce in you? Well, in a very general sense, we just simply call it Christ-likeness, right? To be conformed to the image of Christ is the ultimate sense of fruit in your life, to have Christ-like love and Christ-like character and Christ-like sacrifice, Christ-like thinking, and Christ-like attitude, and Christ-like conduct. Bearing fruit means manifesting Christ in our lives in increasing measure as we grow in our faith. And I know we're all familiar with the list of spiritual fruits in Galatians 5. It's a great list. I don't think it's comprehensive. There's many more spiritual fruit that you can have produced in your life, but it's a really great place to start. So over time, a true believer we'll begin to see love take the place of anger and hatred in their life. That should be happening for the true believer, for the one who is a fruit-bearing branch. Love is beginning to take over your anger and your hatred in your heart. Joy will begin to replace things like bitterness and hate and despair. Peace will come where there once was fear and worry. Patience will start to grow instead of that, that temper that once controlled you. Kindness will come about instead of a mean spirit that you used to have towards other people. Goodness will replace evil in your life. Faithfulness will be seen rather than inconsistency. Gentleness will start to replace a spirit of harshness. And self-control will come where once there was a lack of discipline in your life. These are the things that the Spirit, Jesus, through the Spirit, wants to produce in you. And they should be seen in increasing measure. And of course, the point of all this fruit being produced in your life through the vine is not, not so that we can sit back and, and be really just, you know, look how godly I am, right? It's not about self. It's never about self. That we can sit back and just sort of rest in our spiritual progress. It's not about us. The point of spiritual fruit is never to draw attention to ourselves, but to respond in ways that are both vertical and horizontal as that fruit is produced in our life, vertically to honor the Lord, to bring praise to his name for his goodness and his grace because he's the one who did the work in you. So we don't take credit. We don't boast in ourselves. 
So vertically, that's what we do first. And then horizontally, to use that fruit in your life that God is producing in service of others. That's the point, right? To point people back to the vine, to build up his church through the work that he's doing through you and continues to do in you. Does that make sense? So it's never about us. It's the work that God does in us, but we don't just hold on to it and get all, you know, look at me, right? We reflect that back to God and then we extend it out and radiate it to others. Now, obviously, it takes time for fruit to grow. That's true agriculturally and it's true spiritually. So we don't want to go into despair because, you know, all these things haven't happened in our life yet, right? And, and by the way, the, the fruit is going to look different in each one of our lives, different, you know, varying amounts and also different in terms of our spiritual giftedness. But here's the thing. It's going to be present in a trajectory of progress in your life. This, this is so important to understand. I know some of you guys are still in your 20s and you're still working out your faith and that's wonderful. Take it from an old guy. You want to be able to look back over 40 years and say, you know what? It's been a little bit up and down. I wish it had been more straight, but there's a trajectory of spiritual fruit in my life. That's what you want to look for. These things, this is the normal experience of a Christian life, is that we are increasing in the spiritual fruit in our lives. So it's one of those things. Examine yourself. Examine. Here we go again with that. Wow, that's like two weeks and... I have water this week. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. <clears throat> so examine yourself. Take a look at the trajectory that you're on. This is a great point of prayer, a great point of, of, of talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, am I more leaf than I am grape? Are there a lot of leaves on me and I might look good on the outside, but the fruit's really lacking beneath those leaves? It's a really good point of prayer. Okay. So Jesus then tells us that the key to this, in terms of uh, producing spiritual fruit, is found in this concept of abiding. So we ought to understand what that means. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, let's look at the Greek on this. The Greek verb meno is one of John's favorite words. He uses it all the time. He uses it 10 times in this chapter alone and 15 times in his first epistle. You'll find meno used 118 times throughout the New Testament And you see those words on the screen, right? It's most often translated abide, remain, or dwell with. And in my opinion, I love that last one. The imagery of that last phrase, to me, is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. It's the idea of making our home in the vine. Abide just doesn't feel tangible to me. Remain seems a little bit cold, but to make our home in the vine... I think this is what he's trying to hammer home. We make our home there just as he makes his home in our heart by the Spirit. It's a mutual indwelling. How many times have we talked about this recently? This mutual indwelling, the triune persons, right? And us being invited into that, this this indwelling idea. It's beautiful. So think about what home is. When I say home, what, what images come to mind? Hopefully it's a pleasant thought. For most of us, it is, right? Home is where you want to be, right? Home is where you long for. If you've been away for a while, home is where you long to be back at. Home is where you feel settled. Home is where you can be yourself. Home is that place of safety and security. Home is that place where you're most often fed. Home is that place where you, you, you can rest. It's where you, you get to sleep. 
Home is where family is. Home is where family is, the ones that we love the most. So this picture of dwelling in the vine, of making our home there, is such a beautiful word picture. Jesus Christ is our abiding place. He is our home. It's the place where we enter into the deepest union of fellowship with the triune God. Now look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. And then verse 5 says, if you do this, you will, certainly, you will bear much fruit. So this abiding is absolutely the key. Now, scholars have debated about the grammar about this, but it's really, to me, it's not that difficult. Abide in me, Christian, and see that I abide in you. If you're truly a believer, a fruit-bearing branch, see that I abide in you, Jesus says. Live in such a manner that you are at home with me and that I am at home with you. That's the key. That's the key to producing spiritual fruit. But notice there's an action call here. Abide in me, he says. It's an imperative command. Jesus says, hey, wake up, Christian, abide in me. Do it. Okay, so like obedience to Christ's commandments, abiding or making our home in the vine is not something we're gonna do accidentally. It has to be intentional. I said it last week. You don't just drift into these things. You don't just like stumble into holiness, Right? You don't just drift into obedience. Same thing here. This abiding takes effort. It takes concentration. It takes focus. It takes labor to abide in the vine. So, so many things, like so many things in the Christian life, we've got to find a balance between two things at the same time. And these are the words I came up with this week dependence and discipline. Simultaneously, we need to be dependent and disciplined if we're going to abide in the vine and have the Spirit produce that fruit in us. Let me try to flesh that out. We depend upon the Spirit to strengthen us and make us faithful, even as we discipline ourselves to strive to stay connected to the vine. Both of those things are necessary. Now, one precedes the other, right? The dependence precedes the striving, but they're both important. The Christian life explodes with fruitfulness when we do both of those things at the same time. We depend upon the Spirit, and we discipline ourselves to abide in the vine. You actually see the need for dependence right there in verse 5. Look at verse 5. This is a very well-known phrase, and we quote it often, but we don't always understand what it means. Verse 5 says, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. That's a great promise. But here comes the qualifier, the dependence. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what does that mean exactly? Look, you can make the case that apart from Jesus, believer or unbeliever, not one of us can do a single thing because we're contingent beings, right? Like, God could snuff any, any one of us out in a millisecond. We, we depend upon him for every single moment and every single breath. But that's not what Jesus is actually talking about here. The context here is spiritual fruit. Apart from me, he says, you can produce no spiritual fruit. You can produce zero Zero things that truly matter. No spiritual fruit at all. So that speaks to our utter dependence upon this connection to the vine to produce anything that matters, anything that is kingdom related. So here's the thing. In church life, we can get really busy doing all kinds of stuff. We can spin around and do all kinds of things in our own personal strength, out of our own personal fortitude, and we can think we're doing great. We haven't done anything because it's come from us. We haven't really produced spiritual fruit from the vitality of the living vine. And I'd go so far as to say it's useless. It's just busyness. It's not fruit. 
And on the day that we're judged as believers, we're going to go to the Bema seat, right? And our works are going to be judged and crowns are going to be given. And all of these things that we're doing in our personal fortitude are going to burn up like chaff because we did them in our strength. They weren't true spiritual fruit that were, was born out of our dependence upon the vine, upon the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, as I said, we have to discipline ourselves too. So it starts with dependence. You cannot remove that piece. Otherwise, again, we're just, we're just doing stuff. But we do have to discipline ourselves. Even as we depend, we discipline ourselves. Paul talks about this over and over again. You cannot avoid this language in the New Testament. He talks about his ministry and he likens himself to a runner, right? And to a fighter and to a soldier. And, he, and he, he, he works with a very specific goal. He says this, I don't run without aim. Paul's very strategic in how he labors. I don't run without aim. I don't box as if beating the air. I discipline my body, he says, right? I make it my slave so that I'm doing the right things. First, I depended upon the spirit, but then I discipline my body to strive to do the things that produce spiritual fruit in my life. And in Colossians 1, which we read from earlier, he gives this perfect summary statement of how we balance these two things, right? He says, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. That's the proper balance, isn't it? Both are necessary, dependence and discipline. Amen? So don't, so don't, get, don't get out of balance on that. I don't know where you stand on that spectrum. Some of us are... We just, we just like to do a whole bunch of things in our own strength. It's just, it, it's just the natural fleshly thing that we do. Some of us are, are so dependent on the spirit that we're not doing anything. We're like, I'll just sit here and let God work through me. We've got to balance those two things. Both are necessary. Okay, one last thing, one very important last thing we have to get to, and this is the thing nobody wants to talk about. Second half of verse two. Every branch that bears fruit, that's believers, the gardener prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Underline that word prunes. Now look at verse three. You believers are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Underline the word clean there. So there's a, a linguistic, I won't get into the details here, but there's a linguistic connection between these two words. The father prunes every fruit bearing branch and he does this for every branch that he has already cleaned. Okay, and you can see on the screen, the root of these two verbs are related in the original Greek. Here's the implication. The cleaning and the pruning go hand in hand. First, Jesus cleans you with his word, and you begin to bear fruit. Then the gardener gets a hold of you, and he begins to prune you. Yay! That's so exciting. Right? So that you bear more fruit. Yay! Hard times. Thank you, Lord. We don't, we don't really like talking about this. Because so many of us grew up in churches or were taught at some point that, you know, if you're producing spiritual fruit, your life is just going to be a breeze. Everything is going to go really well for you. God says, no, I want to produce more fruit. And so I will prune you. So in order to make your home in the vine, you must first be a born-again believer, cleansed by the word, and then you get this promise, God will set out to prune you. Now, this is what the gardener has to do, right? Because the gardener's job is to keep that vine healthy, and producing fruit season after season. That's true agriculturally, it's true spiritually. So he is gonna prune you, and he's gonna prune me. And again, being an older guy, I can look back now and I can literally look at the seasons and go, ouch, <laughs> I was being pruned all over the place 
But God has brought me to this place in his, in his mercy and in his grace. Hopefully more mature than I was 40 years ago, but it's because of pruning. And so it is good. As hard as it is, it's good. I read this great uh, testimony from a pastor this week who talked about this pruning process. Listen to what he says. He said, for more than 12 years now, I've struggled with disability and chronic pain in both of my arms. The pain has led to one surgery after another. I'm still disabled and unable to get dressed on my own. I can't drive. I cannot buckle my own seatbelt or even open my car door. The pain level is so high on some nights that I'm unable to fall asleep at all. Here's what he says, though. But this ongoing trial has revealed to me so many idols. Until I began to suffer with this disease, I didn't know that I was an impatient person. I didn't know that I had control issues. For the longest time, I blamed my anger on my pain, and I blamed my impatience on my wife. My idol of comfort was elevated over everything in my life, and it was destroying me. Ironic, isn't it? He says. Idols are harsh masters, but God was graciously pruning me by exposing my sin. My circumstances didn't cause my sin. They merely brought out into the open what was already in my heart. What I had and still have is an opportunity to repent and grow. That's a great example of pruning. And, and is, it, is it fun? Uh, he would not say it's fun. Is it fruitful? Absolutely. So here's the tough thing. When vines get pruned, it's not always attractive. That's what a pruned vine looks like. You would never look at that and go, what a pretty plant that is. It can be drastic and it can look desolate for a time, right? But that's only until the next season of bloom. When God restores it, restores its fruitfulness, it will come. But this season can be really, really hard. Still, we can't sugarcoat this concept. Pruning can be painful. It remains the only way to see a greater crop of spiritual fruit bloom in our lives. So we trust in the goodness of God as he does this, right? He is the good gardener. We trust in his goodness. We, we trust that when he cuts us back, that it's for our benefit and for his glory. And, and that's a, so, when you're going through a hard time, you, that is such an important thing to remember. It may come, by the way, in the form of sorrow in your life. It may come in the form of, of disappointment or failure or a growing sense of weakness. It might be an opportunity that was right at your fingertips and then fell through. It might be a relationship that comes to an end. It might be a transition that hasn't gone as you planned it to go, a tragedy of some kind. It might be a season that was supposed to be joyful and then turns out to be really, really hard and it just caught you by surprise. All of those things can cause the idols of our heart to come to the surface and we have to deal with them. And God says, that's good. God says, I won't forsake you in that. I'll be with you in that, and I'll help you through it. So when God takes us through these times of pruning, we have to remember, listen, the gardener loves you more than you can even know. He loves you. And when he prunes you, he's not punishing you. He's not punishing you, and he's not doing this to make you unfruitful and bare. The exact opposite is true. It's so that you can fulfill the very purpose for which he saved you to produce more fruit. I read this great quote this week, and I'll close with this. This one pastor wrote this. The fact is, when we come into the Christian life, we all bring a lot of the flesh in the world with us. And if you want to be Christ-like, it's got to go. We need pruning. 
But God is gracious not to hack it all away at once or else we'd bleed to death. (laughs) That's so true, right? So he's gracious and he's merciful even in his pruning ways, even when he prunes us. So we submit to the process, right? And we can even praise God for the process. This is the, one of the great transitions you can make in your life to, from enduring trials to finding joy in those trials because God's at work, because you'll come out the other side a more fruitful believer. Paul talks about it in Romans 5, right? He says, we exult in our tribulations. We revel in them, he says. And you're like, are you crazy? Why would we revel in that? He says, because tribulation brings about perseverance. That's a great spiritual fruit. And, spirit, and perseverance brings about proven character. And that's spiritual fruit. And proven character brings hope. And so even in that, we have this great crop of spiritual fruit. And what produced it? Tribulation. Pruning. So I'm going to give you a, a, a few moments to, to pray quietly and to talk to the Lord about this. I'm going to have three questions on the screen that you can challenge your own heart with, you can talk to the Lord about, have I made my home in the vine? It starts there, right? To be a born again believer, to be, have been cleansed by the word. Is the vine my actual home? Or am I a sucker shoot sitting here today? If so, if you fear that's you, come talk to an elder, come talk to somebody and say, I'm not sure. Maybe I just have leaves. But have I made my home in the vine? Number two, how am I bearing fruit for the kingdom right now in the life of this church? How am I bearing fruit for the kingdom? And then three, am I joyfully submitting to God's good, good pruning? Let's bow our heads and let's talk to the Lord and I'll close in just a moment.